And the Declaration of Independence is our country's most sacred document because it's the document that declared the 13 original colonies were free of the rule of Great Britain. Thus, Independence Day is the day on which we celebrate our national freedom. Since tomorrow is a day on which we remember and celebrate our nation's freedom, it serves as a great catalyst for us to be reminded of an even greater freedom. Our spiritual freedom. In Galatians chapter 5 and verse 1, Paul referred to Mosaic law as a yoke of slavery from which Christ has set us free. Did you catch the metaphor there? The old covenant, Mosaic law, in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 1 is referred to as a yoke of slavery from which we've been freed. Paul used the language of bondage, the language of imprisonment, the language of enslavement in reference to the old covenant. In contrast, if you go over to James chapter 1 and verse 25, James refers to the new covenant, to, to Christ's covenant, as the perfect law, the law of liberty. When we think of spiritual freedom, we, we don't normally think about it in the context of its relationship to Mosaic law. But this morning, with freedom on our mind because of tomorrow, I want us to consider the blessing of freedom we have because we're no longer bound by Mosaic law. And I'm going to summarize this with three main ideas related to Mosaic law, and I'm hoping by the end of this lesson you're going to appreciate what God has done in fulfilling the old law and bringing us under his new covenant. So first consider this with me. We have been freed from the law's conditions. How many of you have taken the time to go back and read all 613 different requirements, different commands that are mentioned in Mosaic Law? It's a lot. I'm sure some of you do annual Bible readings, and don't you just get bogged down with Leviticus? I mean, it's such a hard book to wade through because it's just one rule after another, one do or do not after another. Have you really ever paid attention, though, to some of those requirements? I want to share just a few of them, some of the... Some of the, uh, the the big ones that stand out to us. And I want you to consider for a moment just how difficult it would be if you had to abide by these rules still. See, Mosaic law had a rule for every aspect of life. It didn't just affect your spiritual life. It encompassed every part of your life. It affected your relationships. Mosaic law dictated who you could marry and who you could not marry. It was very ethnic-specific about who you were allowed to marry. A Jewish person was supposed to only marry another Jewish person, or really an Israelite was only supposed to marry an Israelite. Now, we know from the study of Scripture, we can venture through passages and see where different Israelites married from outside of that ethnic restriction. 
Well, Mosaic Law did provide provisions regarding what you had to do if you were to marry someone who was not an Israelite. If you looked at Deuteronomy chapter 21, for example, you would find that there was a certain ritual that would have to be performed in order for you to consummate your marriage to someone who was not a fellow Israelite. But there were restrictions about who you could marry and who you could not marry. We live in an age now where we choose whomever we wish to marry. How would we like it to live under a covenant that told us who we could spend the rest of our life with and who we couldn't? Not only that, Mosaic Law had rules about work. Probably the chief of those rules is familiar to you. It was the remembering the Sabbath day and keeping it holy rule. That means you could not do work on the seventh day. Now, to us, that's great. That is ideal. Because some of us work every day. And, and to, to, have, to come in on Saturday and go, Honey, I can't mow the yard today because the law won't let me. That would be nice, wouldn't it? But I want you to think of it in a greater context. There are some of us whose occupations whose responsibilities aren't that easy to shed on one day of the week. There are some of us who have deadlines to meet, and it doesn't matter if that deadline's approaching or not. You can't work on that seventh day. Some of us have uh, um, not only deadlines, but we also have uh, uh, projects that need extra attention. And it doesn't matter if you need to work overtime to get that done. It doesn't matter if work has to be completed on the seventh day. It doesn't matter. Because the Lord says you can't work. It doesn't matter how tall your grass is. It doesn't matter how dusty your house is. It doesn't matter that the other six days you're tied up and busy with everything else. You can't do any work that day. The law restricted it. What about food? Yeah, Moses. You've heard this before. But there are two really big things you can't eat. No shellfish? Now think about that. You can't have certain seafoods. That means no shrimp. Mm. That means no crabs. Sarah, uh, but Micah right there just almost cried when she heard that. No lobster, no clams, no oysters. Now, we're headed to uh, Florida this week. I'm speaking uh, uh, in Pensacola on Wednesday. You know going as soon as I arrive? I'm going to eat some seafood because you can't get good seafood up here. And I want some crab legs. I want some good, delicious, dripping crab legs. I want my hands to hurt from the amount of crab legs I crack open. And I want juices pouring through my beard and getting staining my shirt. I want crab legs. Now imagine a world in which you're not allowed to ever eat crab legs or other shellfish. But you know what? That's not the only thing. You can't have pork. Now process that for a moment. That means no bacon, no sausage, no pork chops, no ham. What is life without bacon? 
And you're not allowed to have that. The law says you can't eat that. We can laugh about the dietary restrictions, but they did have their importance and they did have their place. In addition to that, you did have financial rules. You were required by the law to give 10% of your gross profits. Whether that be financial gain or agricultural production. Now, let me ask you this. How many of you have a garden? How many of you try to grow some of your own food? Imagine that not only did you have to give 10% of your paycheck every week, but you had to go out to that garden and give 10% of what has grown over the course of the past week and bring it to the church building. Imagine that your life required everything you made a gain of, you had to figure out a way to give 10% of it back to the Lord. See, it wasn't just about the coinage you gained. It was about anything you gained. And while we still have an expectation of giving back to the Lord, he's a little less specific about the parameters. The Lord says, be a cheerful giver. The Lord expects us to prioritize giving, but he doesn't specifically say, here's how much has to come out every week. My point is this. The law was very restrictive. The law had very specific parameters, and time will not permit us today to talk about what the law has to say about hygiene, about property management, about warfare, about environmental issues, about social justice, and a new number of other factors. The law was all-encompassing. It was comprehensive, and it was intrusive because it had something to say about every aspect of your life. It had a command for every aspect of your life. And it's not that these laws were a bad thing. They were just burdensome to some degree. Burdensome in comparison to the new covenant. Do you know how many laws we have now? Think about it for a moment. How many laws did the Lord lay down in his new covenant? Honestly, I can only come up with two. We call them the greatest command. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And to love your neighbor as yourself. I'm not saying those are easy commands to obey. But they're a whole lot less intrusive and a whole lot more general than what was expected under Mosaic law. Instead of having to memorize 613 different commands and make sure I follow every one of them, I've got to focus on these two. And these two apply to every aspect of my life. But they're a whole lot less specific. There's a blessing to be found in not being bound to the law's conditions. Look at Acts chapter 15, and you have this great meeting between uh, members of the church in Antioch and the elders of the church in Jerusalem, and they're meeting with the uh, apostles to get them to weigh in on a matter that has brought some contention between those two congregations. The matter was this. There are members 
the church in Jerusalem who went up to the church in Antioch and started telling those Christians there, which was primarily made up of non-Jewish Christians, Gentile Christians, trying to tell them they had to act like a Jew if they wanted to be a Christian. And these two groups, representatives of Antioch, elders from Jerusalem, and along with the apostles, met to determine if, in fact, you were required to keep Mosaic law in order to be a Christian. And after hearing Peter's experience with Cornelius' household, after completing a study of the prophets, after listening to Paul's missionary efforts, that group came to the conclusion that they should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Acts chapter 15 and verse 19. In other words, they recognized that to force Mosaic law on the Gentiles would have been oppressive and wrong since God had clearly indicated that it was no longer necessary to keep Mosaic law. And so at the conclusion of the meeting, it became apparent to the church in Acts 15 that Jesus was the guarantor of a better covenant, as Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 22 says. And that Jesus had made the first covenant obsolete, as Hebrews 8 and verse 13 says. And I think we need to appreciate the freedom that is ours, but we don't have to keep Mosaic law anymore. We aren't bound by the law's conditions. But that's not the only thing about Mosaic law we should appreciate. We should also appreciate that we've been freed from the law's condemnation. Let me explain what I mean here. When you really think about it, law exists to condemn violators, not to reward obeyers. I'm indebted to another preacher for this illustration, but think about it this way. No one has ever been driving down the road and seen flashing lights in their rearview mirror, pulled over to the side of the road, and had the following conversation. Officer, I wasn't speeding, I promise. No, sir, you weren't. Officer, I'm wearing my seatbelt. I've got my phone down. I'm not holding it. I, I, I'm not, I'm, I don't have anything distracting me. No, sir, you don't. And, and officer, my registration and my license are current. All the lights on my car are working. I haven't rolled through a stop sign. I haven't done an illegal turn or anything. No, sir, you haven't. And sir... Why are you pulling me over? I just pulled you over because I wanted to say thank you for being an obedient driver. That never happens! Because the law doesn't exist to reward obeyers. It exists to condemn violators. And Mosaic law worked the same way. The stated purpose of Mosaic law really is to define righteousness. That's what it did. It told us what was right. It told us what was wrong. And you can see in in Scripture, and like Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse 6, where Moses told the nation of Israel, you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in His ways and by fearing Him. What Moses is communicating is there's a right way and there's a wrong way. You either keep His commandments or you don't. That's what this law is designed to do, is to tell you how to do things that are right, to be righteous. So the law existed to distinguish between what's right and what's wrong, to define righteousness and to define sin. And Paul acknowledged this purpose of the law. If you turn over to Romans chapter 7, we're going to spend a little bit of time there. But in Romans chapter 7 and verse 7, Paul said, If it had not been for the law, I would not know what sin is. 
So the law was designed to have this function of showing us what we should do and what we should not do. In the process, it condemned us. It condemned us because it revealed that none is righteous, no, not one. To use the words of Paul in Romans chapter 3 and verse 10. In other words, the law existed to show us what to do, but it ultimately showed us that we're incapable of doing it. And Paul explains why in Romans chapter 7. Look at verses 14 through 19 with me. Let's read that passage. Paul speaking about the law, Romans chapter 7, beginning in verse 14. He said, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin, for I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. You see, what Paul is saying is that the problem isn't the law. There's nothing wrong with the law. The problem is that the law is spiritual and we are mortal. Like Paul, our flesh gets in the way of our spirit to prevent us from keeping the law. So we too are guilty of possessing the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. What Paul describes here is our bondage to sin that Jesus talked about back in John chapter 8 and verse 34 when he said that everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. We are slaves to sin because we do not possess the ability on our own to withstand sin for the duration of our lives. And what's the outlook for those of us who are slaves to sin? Well, Paul summarized it in Romans chapter 7, verse 24, when he said, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Paul is saying that he, that you, that I, that all of us who are slaves to sin, that all of us who are violators of the law are condemned by the law to death. That's the consequence of sin, and that's what the law has revealed to us. The law sentences all of its violators to death. You may recall Romans chapter 6 and verse 23, which says the wages of sin is death. The Greek term translated wages refers to the compensation one receives for a service rendered. So what Romans chapter 6 and verse 23 is saying is that our sin will be compensated with execution. This is a reference to the second death of Revelation. That second death that involves being thrown into the lake of fire. What we've earned for what we've done is execution. You see, the law is showing us that that we're incapable of keeping the law. And so the law is ultimately condemning us the entire time because none is righteous, no, not one. And so here's what we deserve. We deserve execution. Our bondage to sin, therefore, creates a dilemma. And I like the way one preacher summarized it. He said, we have a day in court coming, and the evidence against us isn't circumstantial, it is unassailable and it's admissible because the judge saw us do the crime. 
That's condemnation. And that's what the law is good at. It's good at condemning us because we're bad at keeping it. And I think we need to appreciate the freedom that is ours because we don't have to be subject to the law's condemnation anymore. And the reason we don't have to be subject to it is because of this next point. Because we are free from the law's limitations. Permanently save people. That's why they had to be offered repeatedly. So the law was great at condemnation, as we've already pointed out. But it was weak on salvation. Now, back to the book of Romans with me. We spent all that time in chapter 7 just a moment ago. Go to chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 and verse 1, one of the most beautiful verses in all of Scripture. We'll read verse 1 through verse 4 of Romans chapter 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Let me read that again. The law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now focus on verse 3 of Romans chapter 8 for just a moment. Because the crux of the passage hangs there. In Romans chapter 8 and verse 3, Paul said, God has done what the law could not do. Who did it? Did you do it? Did I do it? No. God did. Paul didn't identify what will free me. He identified who will free me. As one preacher said, if we could free ourselves by what we do, then we wouldn't need good news. We just need good advice. So God fixed the problem. God resolved our dilemma. He freed us, not just from the law's condemnation, but the law's limitation when it comes to salvation. Freedom from sin is an undeserved gift that he made available to us. That's why back in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, after Paul said, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, he followed it up with a declaration that all are justified by his grace as a gift. Because salvation never has been and never will be something that you accomplish. It's a gift, not a reward. And this distinguishes Christianity from every other world religion. You know, the basic question that every religion has to answer is how can I be saved? And Christianity has an answer that's different than every other religion. Now, I'm going to use an incredibly oversimplified summary of religions here that I obtained from another preacher. 
In Buddhism, you save yourself by detaching yourself from all desire. In Hinduism, you save yourself by removing the ego and living in harmony with the divine. In Islam, you save yourself by keeping the pillars of Islam. In Judaism, you save yourself by keeping the commandments. In every one of those religions, you save yourself. But in Christianity, God saves you. You can't do anything to save yourself. And how did God do that? Paul said it in Romans chapter 8 and verse 3. He said that God saved us by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. In other words, the solution to our bondage to sin problem was Jesus. The incarnation was God's way of calling for a stay of execution. Because Jesus did what we could not do. He fulfilled the righteous requirement of the law. That means he never violated the law. That means he never sinned. That means he never broke a commandment. And not only was Jesus sinless, but he was also willing to be sin. He accepted the punishment for our sins. Paul summarized this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 20 when he said that Jesus that God made Jesus to be sin. Excuse me. That God made him who knew no sin to be sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So when Paul declared in Romans chapter 8 and verse 1 that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus He's saying that there's no more bondage to the limitations of Mosaic law. There's no more bondage to sin. There's no more imprisonment. There's no more enslavement because that limitation is gone. There is an eternal sacrifice made for sins and you can be a recipient of it because God through Jesus has obtained our permanent freedom. See, when I threw the image up at the beginning of this lesson, and you see the fireworks and this title of free indeed, it's quite easy for us to automatically go the greatest freedom we have is the freedom of religion in this country. That will never be the greatest freedom you have. The greatest freedom you have will be the freedom from sin that Christ obtained for you that you really can't fully appreciate without understanding the freedom from the law. And here's the thing, there are many of us who don't realize we have that freedom, who don't live like we have that freedom. I'm reminded of a story I heard about a French soldier from the First World War named Louis Delcourt. He was on leave during the war, and he overstayed his leave. And he knew he would be in trouble when he returned. And so, in fearing that kind of disgrace, he decided to just go ahead and desert. So he was home with his mother, and he asked her to board him up in the attic, to hide him so that he wouldn't have to face punishment for his desertion. 
And there he hid for 21 years in his mother's attic until she died. And when she died, he realized he could no longer stay in hiding, that he was going to have to expose himself. He was going to have to reveal himself. And so he made the decision to walk to the nearest police station and turn himself in. It's been 21 years since he went into hiding. He's pale and haggard, and he shows up in this police station and tells the officer what he did. The officer just looks at him, confused, and says, haven't you heard? And Louis Delcourt said, heard what? The officer said that a law of amnesty for all deserters was passed years ago. You're free. Louis Delcourt had freedom, but didn't enjoy it because he didn't know he had it. And the point is that you've already been set free by Jesus. You just may not have realized it yet. If you're still a slave to sin because your sins have never been forgiven, Jesus invites you to repent and be baptized today so those sins can be washed away. If you're still a slave to sin because despite receiving such forgiveness, you have returned to your former manner of life, Jesus invites you to lay aside every sin that clings so closely and return to running the race with your eyes fixed on him. If you're burdened and weighed down by the difficulties of this life, Jesus invites you to come to him, to take on his yoke, to learn from him, and he will give you rest. See, it doesn't matter what bondage you're facing today. What Scripture tells us, what Jesus himself tells us, is if the Son has set you free, you are free indeed. We offer the Lord's invitation today to receive such freedom. And so we invite you to come while together we stand and sing.